This is hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. And how's this for another end of the world? The World Health Organization's inability to distribute vaccines globally, hindered by a lack of commitment from the G7 to get the vaccines to middle and lower income countries, plus the WTO's protection of intellectual property rights. And suddenly, as the pandemic is slowly going away in developed economies, developing nations are about to experience the full brunt force of new variants that are more transmissible without any vaccines and some that are lucky enough to actually have vaccines may not have the syringes needed to distribute those vaccines if the pandemic has revealed anything it's global inequality and the inability of western institutions to deliver when the world needs them like they always promised they would do so what's the developing world to do Well, when it comes to Cuba, which is shut off from the world by U.S. sanctions, it developed their own vaccine that has proven in the last few days to be very highly effective. But when it's other nations suffering from cruel and inhumane U.S. sanctions, like in Venezuela, there's not much they can do. And when Venezuela has tried to get vaccines, either U.S. sanctions or huge banks step in to cause delays. The whole thing has motivated countries like Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, Argentina, Vietnam, Mexico, and more to come up with an alternative to the WHO, an alternative that would circumvent U.S. sanctions and WTO patent rights and works together in a common shared goal of stopping the pandemic globally, everywhere, no matter if you're a developed economy or not. By the way, that's what the majority of Americans across party lines actually wants, including ending patent rights and sanctions, but neither party is doing a damn thing about it. Which all means we'll try to figure out why all that is happening in a few when we have the return of journalist Cole Stangler, who wrote the Intercept article, U.S. Sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela Hamper the Global Fight Against COVID-19. Cole is a Paris-based journalist covering politics and labor issues. This is Cole's third appearance on This Is Hell. Cole was on the show back in December of 2018 and February of 2019 to report to us from France on the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest. You can hear both those interviews now at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on Stangler. Follow Cole on Twitter, at Cole Stangler. Find out more about Cole at at colestangler.com. ColeStangler.com. That's C-O-L-E, by the way. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood, which is a surprise because we thought you'd be out today after your second eye surgery. So what the hell is going on with your peepers? Well, um, it it went uh, uh, surprisingly better than, than, uh, or at least I I didn't feel as, uh, as I needed to convalesce as much as I did the first time. Uh, because I think the first time I was dealing with trying to wear half my glasses and my eye, you know, it just took a really long time. Because only one eye was fixed. <laughs> exactly. So it took a while for my uh, So you're really vision. good at left turns, but right turns you weren't really good at. <laughs> exactly. But now, I mean, things are still a little uh, electric right now, and, like, like uh, bright lights are still a little flashy and, and an irritant. But, but, you know, for the most part, I'm, like, 
95% there, so it's really great. So you drove here? I did, yeah. Uh, after your fun. surgery, did you get a ride home, or were you able to drive oh, yeah, home? yeah, yeah, No, you have to have a, a yeah. ride home, yeah, afterwards. Okay, well, that sounds a little bit more safe. I thought that you just, like, went from surgery into your car and were like, screw it, I'm fine now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But, yeah, no, things are really good. It's pretty exciting. That's fantastic, man. That's really great to hear. Somebody here has improved vision. It's very nice to hear. <laughs> this weekend, I'm uh, going to my biggest brother's memorial in uh, Michigan, which is happening on Sunday. So we will not be airing a live show on Monday. Alex will be playing something from the archives instead. So tune in Monday at 10 a.m. at thisishell.com right here to hear whatever Alex is going to play. But it, it's kind of hard not to be distracted when you're facing the final rite of passage for someone you love dearly. My brother passed away on February 26th, so you'd think that given the nearly four months since he passed away, I would have had time to not necessarily get over it, because that will never happen, but to adjust and internalize it. Apparently, I'm not the only one having difficulty with doing both. With more people getting vaccinated in wealthy nations like here in the United States, more people are coming out to the bar downstairs from where we are doing the show right now, and it's getting increasingly difficult to get through the bar without someone who I have not seen since before the outbreak of the pandemic sharing their condolences for my family's loss. Their kind words, not only kind, but often intense, with many not able to hold back tears. Those words are truly, deeply appreciated. But that said, man... Being reminded that my brother died on a nearly daily basis can be emotionally exhausting, especially when you're just trying to decide if you want a beer. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what mantra are you repeating? What mantra are you repeating? I'm going to have a sip of water. Mm. That's fantastic. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show. When we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, as we do most weeks during this week's moment, Jeff is coming to dinner. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our interview with Cole Stangler. I just want to take a moment to thank all of you for listening to This Is Hell, for liking our Facebook page and following us on Twitter, for sharing the show on social media, for following us on Instagram, for telling your family and friends about This Is Hell. We don't have an advertising budget, so word of mouth is still our lone marketing strategy. So thanks for telling people about the show. Thanks to all of you who support This Is Hell by donating, by subscribing to our Patreon podcast, and everyone who has gone to thisishell.com and clicked on support. Because it, if it wasn't for you, it, if it wasn't for what you do for This Is Hell, I would not have been able to ask a question on yesterday's show that may very well be the most provocative question I've ever asked on This Is Hell. No, I don't mean it was sexy or that the point was to annoy our guests. The question wasn't provocative in those ways. At least I don't think it was, but if you found it sexy, I guess that's cool. My intent was not to annoy or our guest or to uh, anger listeners, but I hoped it would cause some deep reflection about what the United States was at its founding and therefore what it is still very much today. Without your support, without this show, I would not have had the opportunity to ask historian Carol Anderson, author 
of the second race and guns in a fatally unequal America. A question that I'm absolutely certain you have never heard asked anywhere else in any media in the past and likely have never heard anyone ask anywhere. And you probably won't hear this question asked again for a very long time. Yesterday, you, just by listening, gave me the opportunity to ask Carol about the founding documents of the United States. Carol explains how so-called patriots Patrick Henry and George Mason made clear to James Madison that the protection of slavery was absolutely necessary for ratification of the U.S. Constitution. Madison had already added the Fugitive Slave Clause, the extension of the Atlantic slave trade for 20 years, and the Three-Fifths Clause to the Constitution, but that was not enough to get slaveholders to sign on. As Carol writes, the concerns Henry and Mason raised about local control of the militia and how essential it was to put down slave revolts and protect plantation owners had to be addressed. The Second Amendment served that purpose. Thus, in the Bill of Rights emerged an amendment rooted in fear of black people to deny them their rights to keep them from tasting liberty. The Second Amendment became the Faustian bargain made to weaken Southern opposition to the Constitution. All this reminded me of another recent guest, Jacqueline Keeler, as I was mentioning on yesterday's show, author of Standoff, Standing Rock, The Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands. Jacqueline pointed out that the Declaration of Independence not only says all men are created equal, but also lists, quote, repeated injuries and usurpations by King George III, cited as reasons for dissolving political bands with Great Britain, which includes this characterization of native nations and peoples. King George has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. So back then, a couple weeks ago, I asked Jacqueline if that was a declaration on, of war on all native peoples, to which she said it was. But with Carol's points about the Constitution and Jacqueline's about the Declaration of Independence, I had the opportunity to ask Carol yesterday a question nobody asks, and that is, are the nation's founding documents, are the founding documents of the United States of America declarations of race war against the indigenous as well as those of African descent? It's an important question because maybe, just maybe, that's why racism has been so entrenched throughout the entire history of the United States. Maybe, just maybe, our founding documents themselves institutionalize racism while the ink of both were still was still wet. So again, thanks to everyone who listens, who likes, who shares, who supports, who spreads the word of our show. Without you, I would never nail to ask if the history of the United States is one long domestic race war as outlined in the nation's founding documents. So thanks. Really appreciate it. We got another email from Rue in Glasgow overnight. Rue writes, hi, folks. Ever glad to hear Chuck reading out my emails. I'm glad they're appreciated. I just want to take a moment to let you know I'd absolutely love to be a Patreon subscriber if I wasn't so goddamn broke. Just got a promotion, actually, only to find out my pay raise will only be effective in the hours I'm doing tasks unique to the new job role, making any actual increase in pay minuscule. You know what? Probably best you don't read this email on email on air. Too late, Rue. Maybe someday I'll be able to make significantly above a living wage and chip into the good folks at This Is Hell. Hellishly yours, Rue from Glasgow. 
getting a raise because you're being given a new task at work, but the raise only goes into effect during the hours that those tax rela- ta- tasks related to the new job role, that is so back to normal when we all drown in the rising tides of the normal sea. Think about it. You're going about your job doing what you do every day. Your boss says they want to give you a new job with a raise. But you still have to do all your old tasks, and you are not getting a raise for doing those lowly old tasks. Only the new stuff you have to do now. Let's say you're a prep cook in a restaurant, and you finally make it to being a line cook. You get a raise, but your boss says, once you are doing any prep work, your pay drops back down to what you were making. And if you wash a dish, you need, well, your wages must drop again because dishwashers only deserve the lowest pay in any kitchen. Now, how an employer would actually manage this kind of always changing pay scale is beyond me, but I'm certain there's some new software that can be integrated into an employee surveillance system that manages to keep wages stagnant quite efficiently. Ain't technology grand. Rue, thanks for the email, thanks for all the emails, and welcome back to Normal, where workers have few rights and employers keep coming up with new ways to keep workers' wages down. Coming up, U.S. sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela are slowing the global response to the pandemic. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what mantra are you repeating? What mantra are you repeating? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. Check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. Email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Richard will also be telling us who is on tomorrow's Thursday's show. Capitalism is the virus, and this is hell. What Cubans call the blockade, cutting them off from global finance institutions and the rest of the world, imposed by the U.S., can be a real problem when you're trying to fight a global pandemic. Same thing when it comes to U.S. sanctions on Venezuela, which prior to the pandemic were being credited with killing as many as 40,000 Venezuelans, if not more, according to a Center for Economic and Policy Research study. So imagine how devastating those same sanctions are while facing a virus that's killing millions around the world. With the world failing them, Cuba, Venezuela, and other developing nations are seeking an alternative. Here to help us better understand what is happening right now in the developing world while the pandemic rages on returning to This Is Hell. Journalist Cole Stangler wrote the Intercept article, U.S. sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela hamper the global fight against COVID-19. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Cole. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here. This is Cole's third appearance on This Is Hell. Cole was on the show back in December of 2018 and February of 2019 to talk about the yellow vests as he reported to us live from France. You can hear about those interviews at thisishell.com when you search on Cole's name. And you can follow Cole on Twitter at Cole Stangler and find out more about him at his website, colestangler.com. So you start by writing that in Cuba, the smallest country in the world's uh, in the world to produce its own COVID-19 vaccines, five immunizations are currently in clinical trials. Soberana 2, Abdallah, have uh, and Abdallah have reached phase three, making the island nation the only country in Latin America to reach the final stage in vaccine development. In the meantime, three other kinds of Cuban COVID-19 shots are already in early trial phases. So to you, what explains Cuba's success in producing its own vaccines, especially 
when it is a nation that is under a trade embargo from the United States? Why are they and they're in the midst of they were in the are in the midst of a recession? So why are they having so much success in the health sector? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is tied to some pretty specific, unique circumstances uh, in in Cuba. Um, you know, that 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 go back to. Um, Really, decisions made under the the the, the Cuban communist government, um, and you know, regardless of, of all the sorts of criticism um, that uh, you could make of the government under Fidel Castro, and that's continuing today, um, and and frankly, criticisms that, as a journalist, I would make I, that that should be made. Um, what's clear in Cuba is that you have a lot of state investment. Uh, in education, a lot of state investment in healthcare um, that you know allow the island to to punch above its weight, as it were. Um, you know, in those two fields, a highly educated population and a very effective healthcare system, given uh, given the, the overall state of the economy and the size of the country. Um, I think that's one important point. Another, you know, couple of things that two other points I should say, which. Um, uh, you know, other experts, frankly, on, on the topic have sort of outlined to me is uh, you have, uh, unlike uh, in uh, Europe, North America, you have very close ties between people that are conducting research uh, on, on health issues and, and, and medical issues, uh, and also the public health sector. They're very closely interlinked um, and in constant communication. So you're able to sort of calibrate policies uh, because of that coordination. And then finally, the last element I would say is you have a very um, effective uh, biotech sector that, that, that essentially the Cuban government has prioritized since the 1980s. Um, so a lot of um, pharmaceutical research, because the Cuban government decided this was going to be one of their priorities in the 1980s. And so the country is suffering uh, today uh, economically as a result of the U.S. sanctions, the decline in tourism. Um, but, you know, they, they do have these strengths. Um, and the country is also, I should say, the, the, the final point, too, which is, which is worth stressing, is that Cuba is a country that is used to um, sort of navigating on its own because it, doesn't, it hasn't had the choice to do otherwise. The U.S. trade embargo has been in place since the early 1960s. And then, of course, the Cuban government was closely aligned to the Soviet Union, um, but after the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, the early 90s, Cuba went through this, the, the quote-unquote special period, as is known there, where they were had a, a severe economic crisis and essentially, you know, were forced to to adapt to to those difficulties. And so Cuba is, is sort of, you know, had had a, an, a, a, an amount of uh, a high level of of sort of uh, sovereignty uh, when it comes to uh, medical questions, when it comes to um, uh, it's general policies that, that I think have, have allowed it to, uh, I don't want to say thrive, but, but really, frankly, punch above its weight because it is the only country in Latin America uh, that is producing uh, its own vaccines developed in the country. You know, as you mentioned, um, two different vaccines right now that are in that are in phase three. And so I think all those factors really, really help to, to explain that. So is Cuba proof positive that countries even within the so-called you know, sphere of influence of the United States within the Western Hemisphere. Is it proof positive that any nation can survive without U.S. help, can survive outside of capitalist globalization? I, mean, I think it's a really tough question. Um, 
you know, I think, I think what's clear is that, is that uh, saying that you want to have, you know, technological sovereignty, health sovereignty, education sovereignty, isn't enough for it to, you know, sort of come into being. You need to have uh, uh, this, you need to have uh, investment in, in the sectors themselves. And that's the route that, you know, that, that, that Cuba has taken. I mean, frankly, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can answer the, it's, it's a really interesting and important question to ask. Um, I mean, I would just say that, look what, you know, look what, look what Cuba's doing right now. And again, despite all the criticisms that, that I think you can make about the government. And again, I want to stress that because, you know, I, you know, you could you get accused of um, having other interests in play. Maybe we can get into that as well. But um, I, mean, I think the reason why we should care about, um, you know, what's happening uh, uh, in Cuba, um, you know, is that the, the U.S. sanctions uh, are having an impact on the, ability, on the country's ability to fight the virus. They're having an impact um, by extension on, on, on the world's ability uh, to, to fight the crisis. Back in March 2020, so last year, Newsweek ran a story. It wasn't even like, I think it was on March 23rd or 24th. They ran a story headlined, Cuba uses wonder drug to fight coronavirus around the world despite U.S. sanctions. In that March 2020 story, Newsweek reported that Cuba has mobilized its medical corps around the world to distribute a new wonder drug that officials there say is capable of treating the new coronavirus despite the United States' strict sanctions that continue to pressure the communist-run island. The drug called Interferon Alpha 2B recombinant is jointly developed by scientists from Cuba and China where the coronavirus COVID-19 disease outbreak first emerged late in 2019. Already active in China since January 2020, the Cuban medical brigades began deploying to dozens of nations, providing personnel and products such as its new antiviral drug to battle the disease. A paper at the International Journal of Infectious Diseases found that interferon alpha-2b was shown to significantly improve the clinical status in moderate COVID-19 subjects. So it wasn't a vaccine that cured the vaccine. It wasn't a vaccine that cured the disease. It was something that actually just made it better for moderate COVID-19 subjects. Where this was being reported in the U.S., it was being called vaccine diplomacy with an implied cynicism about exploiting a pandemic for political goals. Is Cuba trying to exploit the virus for political aims? Is this desire for a vaccine and their ability to get a vaccine driven by a desire to make money? Is Cuba just trying to fix their economy and win some points politically? Well, I think, you know, I think there's, there's obviously political interests, uh, you know, at, at play. I, I, I think, you know, I think you can make that case about any government that's, that's developing a, a vaccine in their country. But as far as the uh, economic incentives go, what I think is interesting to point out is, you know, as, as um, you know, sort of the one of one of the little, you know, I want to say scoops, uh, you know, as uh, in the story that I reported in The Intercept was the fact that Cuba um, was announcing now at this conference that was held last weekend, the Progressive International uh, Vaccine Summit, um, Cuba was announcing um, its interest in sharing um, uh, its vaccine uh, and distributing uh, its vaccine with countries that would that would be potentially interested uh, in having it. And so now that we've seen that the summit take place, um, you know, and the conclusions were issued, what's interesting is about coming out of that summit, uh, the Cuban government uh, has announced uh, uh, again at, at that summit that they were interested in 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 collaborating on vaccine trials and licensing with other countries. So having open licensing rather than exclusive licensing, which means that you can work with manufacturers around the world um, 
uh, in order to in order to help produce it, whether those whether those manufacturers are in uh, an allied country that's also under U.S. sanctions like Venezuela or um, elsewhere, whether it's Mexico, Jamaica, uh, Bolivia, uh, Africa, you know, uh, countries in Africa, Kenya. Um, and I think that that's an important point. And so that, you know, that's a different model. So if, you know, if the, the sole motive here um, was, was purely um, financial to, um, you know, boost, uh, you know, the coffers of pharmaceutical companies uh, in Cuba, you know, you could point to, you could point to this different model that they're, that they're um, trying to implement when it comes to sharing the technology for their vaccines and producing um, those vaccines uh, abroad. So the U.S. cutting off Cuba's and Venezuela's access to international finance is keeping Cuba from distributing their treatments and vaccines and stopping vaccines and treatments from entering Venezuela. How easy is it for the U.S. to cut off access to international finance? And can that ability be challenged? So when there is another pandemic, we don't have this inequality of distribution of vaccines again. Yeah, I mean, you know, the U.S. has an has an enormous uh, uh, amount of pressure that it, that it can put on businesses around the world to not do business uh, in Venezuela and to not do business uh, in Cuba. It has an enormous amount of pressure that it puts that it puts on banks as well. And I think this is a really important point to stress about um, about the sanctions. What, what I'm going to say is that you know, if you if you talk to the State Department, you talk to people that are broadly supportive of U.S. sanctions in Cuba and Venezuela. What they'll say is basically. Um, you know, the sanctions, uh, yes, they're tough, but they include, um, they include broad exemptions that are in place for medical supplies and for food supplies. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's unfair to say that they're, that, that they're blocking, um, the country's ability to import important medical supplies, um, syringes, masks, ventilators, et cetera. Uh, that's the argument that, that the state department will make. And they'll say, look, if you, if you look at the sanctions, um, you know, read read the you know the the, the wording. Um, it's clear. You know, there there there's uh, exemptions that are in place. Okay, so those exemptions are in some cases more clear uh, than others. But I think um, an important point to make first off is the overall economic impact is extremely significant. Um, we've seen in Venezuela, and I'll get to the specifics in a moment. But in Venezuela, the overall economic impact of the sanctions, according to a report that came out last year from the Washington Office on Latin America, which is not a think tank that's particularly uh, uh, close to the Chavistas uh, in Venezuela, they estimated that sanctions have caused Venezuela, U.S. sanctions have caused Venezuela since 2017 to lose between $17 billion and $31 billion in revenue, which is basically in line with what John Bolton, the former U.S. National Security Advisor under Trump, said. Um, so you're, you're significantly hurting um, uh, taking money out of state coffers and you're bringing the economy down overall. The U.S. sanctions has place. U.S. government has sanctions in place on the government in Venezuela, the central bank, the state oil company. Um, it's also making it difficult for the U for Venezuela um, to. Uh, it's it's hurt its ability to get oil revenue, which is what businesses use to to import goods. So the overall economic impact is significant um, uh, in Venezuela. It's significant uh, in Cuba as well. So. To get back to what I was saying about the, the humanitarian exceptions, those are in place. Uh, okay, you can you can say there are a certain amount of exceptions in place, but the broad economic impact is significant. And secondly, I think this is maybe just as important, is that uh, the the mere fact that the sanctions are in place um, makes a lot of banks, it makes a lot of lenders, and it makes a lot of businesses uh, not 
want to do business uh, in those countries. Um, if you're an international lender, um, why would you run the risk of even potentially running afoul of US sanctions when you know that it comes with a hefty penalty, there might be criminal charges, you're going to get shamed by the United States government. Um, and I think just the mere risk of, of, of the mere possibility of running afoul of US sanctions has a dissuasive effect on people's uh, interest in doing business in Cuba and Venezuela. We've already seen that um, you know, in Cuba significantly under the, um, in addition to the trade embargo, in addition to the sanctions that, that, that Trump put in place just before leaving office, uh, he listed Cuba as a, as a state sponsor of terrorism um, just before leaving office. And so earlier this year, um, you know, you've had the mainstream press report on this as well, Reuters reporting on um, people in Cuba, uh, businesses in Cuba, um, having significant problems getting international financing because of this new listing um, and because of the, the sanctions uh, overall. Likewise, in Venezuela, um, uh, you know, maybe to enter into a, into a specific case I'll give you here, um, and, then, and then I'll allow you to, to maybe ask another question, but to, about, about Venezuela, um, you had, Venezuela is the only country right now uh, in Latin America that is not receiving, that has not received uh, vaccines through the COVAX platform. COVAX is the platform that's in place for essentially low-income developing countries or any country that hasn't been able to get a, um, you know, its own uh, bilateral deal with uh, pharmaceutical companies to provide vaccines. So if you're not the US, UK, or Canada, if you're not the European Union, um, you know, COVAX uh, gives you a way to uh, get access to, to vaccines. So Venezuela is the only country that has not been able to access COVAX. The, the Maduro government, the government of Nicolas Maduro, uh, has said for months now that it's been struggling to, to get money to pay COVAX in order to access the vaccines. There seemed to be a breakthrough uh, uh, several weeks ago. Uh, it said that it, it was coming close to meeting the, the final financing requirements. I think that the number is $120 million, not that much money in the grand scheme of things, um, in order to access the vaccines. Now, just um, uh, earlier this month, the Venezuelan government said that uh, its final payments, um, uh, the final $10 million that it needed to uh, uh, pay COVAX to get the vaccines, um, essentially uh, uh, its payments were blocked uh, and it was by, uh, by a bank um, and that it was therefore unable to uh, access uh, the unable to access the vaccines. The bank, uh, the bank is UBS. Um, now, the State Department will say, the U.S. government will say, "Oh well, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing in the sanctions that prevents um, that prevents you from getting uh, that prevents banks from working with the Venezuelan government in order to get vaccines. You know, the sanctions allow you to do that. Okay, uh, but if you're a lender, uh, you know, when you have payments coming coming in from Venezuela, coming in from um, you know." individuals that you need to verify um, a lot of paperwork um, you know you might not want to you, you know you might not want to make that uh, make that deal even if the sanctions allow it and so Venezuela as it stands today uh, to wrap up my point here still doesn't hasn't been able to obtain any vaccines through COVAX now the U.S. government will say okay humanitarian exceptions were not directly responsible but then I would say frankly um, you know I think there's a pretty strong case to be made that that's an indirect uh, result directly of U.S. sanctions. And, you know, I think a lot of people would say it's even a direct result uh, of U.S. sanctions, frankly. 
Yeah, definitely. And by the way, fantastic answer. While COVAX, you write that while COVAX has fallen well behind on its original targets, G7 countries nevertheless called the platform the primary route for providing vaccines to the poorest countries at their summit last weekend. So why has uh, COVAX fallen behind on its targets? You mentioned this in Cuba, the more public orientation of healthcare as opposed to the privatized version that we see too often here in the United States and in the West. So why has COVID fallen behind on its targets? Is it the fault of the World Health Organization? Is COVAX falling short of its goal due to something that is out of the control of the World Health Organization? What is it about COVAX that makes it fall short in its ability to distribute vaccines globally? Yeah, I mean, that's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated, big question uh, you're asking. Again, an, an important question to, 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 to ask. And I'm not sure I have the, you know, the most complete answer for that. I think it's a, I think it's a question that a lot of people are, are debating right now. Um, you know, but it's, it's clear there's this huge shortage of vaccine production uh, overall. There's not enough vaccines that are being made right now to satisfy the world population. I think that is the question, um, you know, I, I would say the most important question today is you have a shortage, uh, rather than focusing on, on, on COVAX and the, the shortage that COVAX um, is encountering, you have a, you have a real shortage. Um, and, you know, I think in addition to, uh, to, to the shortage, you have, you have a severe distribution problem. You have an inequality problem. You have countries uh, in uh, North America, in Europe, um, uh, OECD countries that have, uh, disproportionate access to the vaccines, to vaccines, um, and you have countries that are basically outside of this that don't have the ability to uh, negotiate the limited number of doses that are being produced by big pharma right now. Um, you know that they're sort of outside and um, you know struggling for struggling for alternatives, which is why an initiative from the Cuban government, um, again, regardless of what you think of of, of uh, the government in Cuba, that's why an initiative like this is all the more important because we are facing a vaccine shortage uh, internationally. And so if you have a country that has the ability to produce vaccines, to produce vaccines that um, appear to uh, be working uh, uh, effectively, you know, then that's something that, that I think you should, uh, that we should take seriously. Um, and, and unfortunately, uh, U.S. policy right now is making it, uh, is making that more difficult. And you also write that Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro's government says it has aimed to work around these measures, the financial sanctions put on Venezuela by the United States. Back in March of this year, Maduro even cut a deal with opposition head Juan Guaido, still recognized as interim president by the U.S. State Department, to free up $30 million in offshore cash frozen under American sanctions to help pay for COVID-19 shots. The Biden administration, you know, as you know, immediately upon taking office, announced that they would continue to recognize Juan Guaido as interim president of Venezuela. However, the claim Guaido made to take to claim office was based on him being a member of the National Assembly, and he's no longer a member of the National Assembly, which kind of undermines his entire claim. Only the UK and the United States recognize Guaido, two nations of 195 around the world. Is UK and US recognition of Guaido, is that recognition on its own as the interim president of Venezuela an obstacle to vaccine distribution in Venezuela? You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure um, how to answer that. I mean, it's, it's, it's clear that, that um, 
the U.S. and in the U.K. are fairly isolated on, on recognizing Guaido. I mean, not even the European Union recognizes uh, Guaido as president any, anymore of, of, of Venezuela. The EU did that initially and is now backed off of that. Um, I mean, I think, I think more importantly or more immediately, and I, I think that, that you know, that, that um, stance towards Guaido is reflective of a broader policy stance that the U.S. has in place today. And I think the question is, how do you change U.S. policy in, to Venezuela right now. The U.S. could make it easier uh, for Venezuela to obtain uh, medical aid. Um, it could start removing the sanctions that it's put in place, uh, sanctions that were expanded uh, under Donald Trump and sanctions that are, remain in place under, under Joe Biden. So I think, I think that's probably the, the place to start is, I mean, look at the, look at the sanctions. But, but you're right. I mean, it's part of a, it's part of a broader political approach that the U.S. government has. And I think that, you know, the, an interesting you know, way to look at this is regardless, again, what you think about the Maduro government, um, you know, the, 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 the Venezuelan, the, the ability of Venezuela to fight the pandemic has an impact on everyone. I think this is a point that, you know, others have obviously made as well, perhaps more eloquently than, than the way I'll make it. But, you know, we don't, we're not speaking with officials from the Progressive International uh, which organized the summit that I was talking about uh, earlier, um, in which Cuba, uh, Bolivia, Mex uh, Argentina, um, the Kenyan, uh, excuse me, the, uh, I believe a representative from Kenya attended as well. A number of, of countries, manufacturers, experts attended. Um, you know, th their point is that, um, and it sounds kind of corny, but I think it's worth taking seriously, um, which is, you know, we are all, all in this together. And I don't mean that in sort of this like abstract way, but really, Concretely, uh, the longer you allow uh, variants to, uh, the longer you allow the virus to circulate. Um, and again, I'm not a I'm not a health expert, but I think I think on this question that the evidence is is fairly clear. The longer and the more easily you allow the virus to circulate, uh, the more risks there are uh, of these different variants popping up, like we've seen in the UK, like we've seen in India, like we've seen in Brazil, countries that have been hit really hard by, by the pandemic. Um, and so you can make the case that the US government, you know, when you look at Venezuela, um, I mean, it's, it's in the interest of, of not just the US government, not just the Venezuelan people, it's in the interest of, of everyone to give the, the government the means in Venezuela to, to stop the circulation of the virus. And, and the situation there is, is, is pretty bleak. Right now, they're relying on vaccines, a very limited number of vaccines from Russia and from China um, that are going out to older senior citizens, but a small share of them and health professionals, a small share of them. In the meantime, the virus is circulating significantly. And, and the numbers from, the, from Venezuela are, uh, are my, most people um, expect or uh, assume that they're, that they're, wide, that they're undercounting the extent, uh, the extent of the virus. And so I think that's a, a question that, you know, that, that needs to be asked, especially in, in, in context of the Biden administration's uh, promises to, to fight the pandemic uh, worldwide. Um, you know, maybe the U.S. could take the very simple step of, 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 of uh, loosening sanctions or, frankly, even removing the sanctions and, and making it easier for the Venezuelan government to get financing uh, to, to fight the pandemic. So to you, what explains why the Biden administration hasn't returned to a more Obama-like policy towards Cuba? Why? And, and why isn't that even a discussion within the media or a debate right now? It doesn't make any sense to me that that did not ever come up within the presidential campaign. So to you, what explains why that's happening? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, Chuck, I want, to, I want to make one last point also before. That's a good question. I'm going to answer that. But I think one important piece of evidence, again, to how, how the um, how uh, policies right now are having a concrete impact. Cuba has, um, I neglected to make this point before, Cuba has vaccines that they're producing, but they're, the government claims that there is a significant shortage of syringes that are needed to deliver the vaccines. They, there's an NGO working abroad that says that uh, the Cuban government needs 30 million syringes in order to administer uh, uh, the vaccine in Cuba, and they currently lack 20 million, and they're having difficulty getting the syringes because of the sanctions. I just wanted to make that, that point clear. Um, so there is a direct impact right now in the ability of Cuba to administer its vaccines that they say is tied to the sanctions. But to answer your question of, of why hasn't there been a change in policy, um, you know, the, the, the Biden, uh, Joe Biden, when he was, when he was running for president, um, spoke favorably uh, about the, the Obama uh, quote unquote thaw and the, the thought in uh, U.S.-Cuba relations that the Obama administration oversaw, loosening of the uh, embargo, but but not repealing of it. Um, but you know we haven't seen we, we haven't seen any any movement uh, on this front uh, since Biden has uh, has come into office, and you know uh, I think a lot of people are are wondering are wondering the answer to that that question. I, I don't I don't have an answer for you. I mean. They, Biden, you know, it wasn't a focus of his of his um, of his candidacy. But uh, you know, when you when you think about this idea of the U.S. getting back on the world stage and and taking multilateralism seriously and defending liberal values internationally and being back on on the stage and retreat and you know making a shift from from the from the Trump sort of uh, uh, unilateral approach. This is what the the, the liberals and, and the the Democratic administration say about themselves. When you think about sort of that shift um, that the people in the State Department believe at the high at the high ranks, and, and that the, the shift that they want to communicate internationally. Yeah, you would think that uh, there there would be a shift uh, in policy, but I don't really have a good answer for you, Chuck. I think uh, I think you should ask uh, the State Department uh, that why why isn't there a shift? Because it's it, it, I think. You know, you, you could also make the case, and I think the, the, the article uh, that I wrote, you know, does this, um, you know, maybe in a more in a more subtle way. But there's a there's a, you know, real um, contradiction here between between the Biden administration's ambitions. It says it wants to vaccinate the world. Uh, uh, you know, it has these bold uh, promises that that it, you know trumpets at the at the G seven. Um, you know, there's there's a real contradiction there. Um, you know, not just between its its more you know liberal multilateral foreign policy ambitions broadly, but also when it comes to the pandemic, there's a major contradiction. Um, so, you should get someone from the State Department on on your program and ask them <laughs> why isn't there a shift. I, I have them all in my Rolodex right now, and I can't believe I still have a Rolodex. So, Cole, you point out that a data for or data for progress poll. Uh, was commissioned and shared with The Intercept ahead of publication. Majority of Americans believe Washington's policies towards Cuba and Venezuela need a change for the sake of fighting the pandemic. 66% of those polled said they support lawmakers suspending the U.S. embargo so Cuba can provide life-saving treatment to poor countries, including 79% of Democrats and 54% of Republicans. Meanwhile, 67% said they support the U.S. waiving sanctions on certain countries to enable them to receive the medication uh, equipment as well as vaccines they need to fight the COVID-19 pandemic just 22% oppose the idea if those polls are accurate 
and the majority of even Republicans believe we should at least waive sanctions for now, if not waive intellectual property rights. What's stopping it from getting done? Why Why is it that this is, you know, you, did your story get pe- picked up in the larger news outlets in the United States? Is there an uproar yet in the establishment media, both corporate and public, when it comes to the majority of Americans wanting sanctions lifted against Cuba and vaccine now due to the pandemic, but nothing's being done? Yeah, I mean, there, there are members of Congress, uh, you know, that have sort of made noise about this more recently. I think, um, you know, even even under the, the new Congress under Joe Biden um, that has called for lifting sanctions and ending the trade embargo. Um, you know, so there is some movement in, on the Democratic side in, in Congress, um, you know, and I, I, I suspect when they look at polls like this, uh, it will give them confidence to make these arguments. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it, I, I think U.S. policy towards Cuba, as I'm sure your listeners have, are familiar with, I mean, so much of this is uh, dictated by uh, a, a extremely small group of uh, well-connected um, uh, people in the state of Florida that, uh, you know, have a lot of political sway, um, you know, have been trumpeting this issue uh, for decades now. And... You know, we saw that during the what the last uh, Democratic primary, um, which was this idea that oh, you got to be careful about calling out U.S. sanctions on Cuba because you know uh, you're going to upset those really important uh, voters, um, those those Democratic voters uh, in Florida. You can't go too far because then you're going to lose them. Um, you know, we saw obviously Trump won uh, won Florida anyways, uh, so uh, I'm not sure what. Biden's more uh, uh, lukewarm stance on, on sanctions to Cuba really accomplished when you compare that to other candidates like uh, like Bernie Sanders, um, or I believe Elizabeth Warren was also uh, uh, closer to, to the Sanders uh, point of view on Cuba as well. So, and then you look at polls like this, like you just mentioned, uh, where Stephen, if we forget the short-term interest in trying to win electoral votes from the state of Florida, when you look at the, the American population, uh, people are against this. And I mean, I think as well, uh, you know, we're also, as we're speaking right now, there's a vote uh, uh, scheduled at the United Nations later today um, in which the UN General Assembly, so it's not just the American population, but in which the UN General Assembly is expected to vote for a resolution condemning the U.S. trade embargo against Cuba. It's a resolution they voted on, um, I believe, more than 20 times. Um, and it's not just a majority of countries that have been criticizing the, the sanctions, but uh, an overwhelming majority. I'm trying to get the exact number of countries. I think you know more than 150. You had the last time the U.N. General Assembly voted on this, uh, you had only uh, two countries excuse me, three countries that voted against the resolution that was the United States, Israel, and Brazil, and you only had two countries that abstained uh, from voting, which was Colombia and Ukraine, all of them very close U.S. allies. So you only have three countries in the world that voted against uh, this resolution condemning the U.S. trade embargo. The, the world community, the overall, the global <laughs> population, I should say, um, recognizes the harmful impact of this embargo. Um, the U.S. population recognizes the, the the impact of this embargo. I think it's a question of, you know, putting more pressure on on the Democrats in Congress and putting more pressure on 
on the Biden administration. I think this is a point that they're, you know, fairly, you know, sensitive to, um, you know, it, 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 it would seem to, you know, directly, you know, even if you want to make the case to, to them under, under their terms, um, you know, you can, like I was doing earlier, you can make this case on a, you know, very, make very simple moral case um, for, for getting rid of the sanctions. You can make a political case for getting rid of the sanctions. Um, you know, we're just, uh, we're just not there yet. Following last weekend's Progressive International Summit, this is the summit uh, with Venezuela, Bolivia, Argentina, Cuba, Vietnam, Mexico, many other nations. On Monday, Reuters reported Cuba said on Monday its three-shot Abdallah vaccine against the coronavirus had proved 92.28% effective in last-stage clinical trials. The announcement came just days after the government said another homegrown vaccine, Soberana 2, had proved 62% effective with just two of its three doses. The Caribbean's largest island is facing its worst COVID-19 outbreak since the start of the pandemic following the arrival of more contagious variants, setting new records for daily coronavirus cases. So has the vaccine come just in time for Cuba? Will they have the syringes, as you were pointing out earlier, with the U.S. uh, Commerce Department saying they're waiving some rules so they can get the syringes? Uh, So has the vaccine come just in time for Cuba? Have the syringes come just in time for Cuba? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the the when Cuba says it's dealing with a surge, I think it also needs to be compared against uh, the rest of the world um, because the the number of cases in Cuba still, uh, if I'm not mistaken, isn't relatively speaking that high. When you look at uh, outbreaks in, in you know in, in countries nearby in the Caribbean uh, or in Latin America, um, but you know the vaccine, those numbers uh, that you're that you mentioned, uh, the fact that the Abdullah vaccine is 92 percent. Um, effective, uh, you know, is extremely encouraging. Um, and, you know, it also, again, points to this question of, you know, we were talking about earlier of, uh, of exports. The um, director of the Finlay Institute, which is one of the, um, one of the major uh, pharmaceutical uh, research institutes in Cuba, um, has said that Cuba could produce 100 million vaccines by the end of the year, which is 70 more uh, excuse me, 100 million doses by the end of the year, but 70 million more than what the Cuban population needs. Right now, they're focused on uh, distributing those uh, 30 million doses, provided they can uh, have enough syringes to, to get them deployed. Um, but uh, once the Cuban government finishes vaccinating its population, you know, this question becomes more more acute, more more important, more pressing of, uh, you know, uh, uh, ensuring other countries can easily uh, produce and have, ac- have access to um, have access to the to the Cuban vaccines. And again, I want to stress again, I'm, I know I'm like repeating myself, but I don't think this is this doesn't have to be a point about, um, you know, supporting the Cuban revolution or making a point about, um, you know, one making a point about, you know, the effectiveness of the Cuban revolution. It's a really simple moral point about you have vaccines that are entering the market at a point in which right now today in the world, there's uh, a severe shortage um, and countries are unable to get those vaccines. Uh, you know, you have potentially 70 million more doses hitting potentially the international market. You know, I think it's important to, to try to find a way to, um, you know, to try to find a way to, to, to get those, those doses deployed. Um, and I think that's the, you know, that's the, the, the most important question. And, and the, the, the progressive, uh, summit that was held, the progressive international vaccine summit that was held, 
you know, I think highlighted the interest in, in other countries in, um, in getting access to the Cuban vaccine, um, that Bolivia, uh, Venezuela, that says it wants to produce the Cuban vaccine right now. Um, like the Mexican government also expressed uh, some interest. But the, this question of the sanctions, then again, you know, uh, the risk of repeating myself uh, comes up again. Because if, let's say, just take an example here, you know, if, let's say, you're uh, a, a pharmaceutical manufacturer that has the know-how to produce this vaccine, which is not as complicated as the um, as the, the messenger RNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna shots uh, that are uh, developed in the United States. Um, the, if you have the know-how to produce this vaccine, and let's say you're based in, I don't know, uh, Mexico, Jamaica, um, uh, you know, say Colombia, um, let me not Colombia because of the, the U.S. Let's say, you know, let's Mexico or, or Jamaica, um, you know, uh, that could, that could become, that could become tricky given the, the legal requirements that you have to sort of navigate around. Um, you know, if, you're part of a conglomerate that uh, is owned by shareholders in the United States, or you're part of an American-owned company, even partially, uh, you know, that could make it difficult uh, for you to be able to produce this vaccine um, in, 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 in Mexico, let's say. Uh, and that should worry people, uh, I think. <laughs> when you look at the COVID situation uh, uh, in Mexico, that would have a direct impact on the ability of uh, Americans to cope, to fight the virus uh, and the world. Um, I don't think, you know, that should be particularly reassuring uh, if you're uh, living in uh, Texas or Arizona, you know, New Mexico, to put it crudely, and, you know, just south of the border that the, the Mexican government is having problems deploying vaccines and you have manufacturers that are interested in producing a vaccine, but they can't because they're afraid of getting in trouble uh, with the U.S. government. That should be alarming. And there's a huge outbreak right now in the border area in within Texas. So following last week's uh, Progressive International Summit, in a story posted at DevEx, the media platform for the global development community, they reported that Cuba and Mexico have committed to open licensing, as you were saying, their domestically developed COVID-19 vaccines. And Venezuela has proposed creating a tech-sharing platform that could run in parallel with the World Health Organization's COVID-19 technology access pool at the conclusion of the summit for vaccine internationalism, led by countries from the global south. So ha has the pandemic revealed the ineffectiveness of Western institutions to developing economies? And are developing economies then right now globally scrambling to come up with alternative to Western institutions? Does this mean uh, an uh, a lessening of power of Western institutions? I mean... I think I, I, I certainly agree that it's revealed the, the limits and the weaknesses of, of these institutions, um, you know, to, to bring up another issue, which, you know, we haven't raised. Um, and I think this is, this is also another one of the issues that, that came up at this uh, vaccine summit that we've been talking about. Um, you have countries saying that they're uh, essentially going to break uh, the world, world trade organization's rules right now um, uh, uh, on, uh, on intellectual property restrictions, um, you know, right now, and this is something that's before the World Trade Organization right now, I think a clear example of how West, you know, these great liberal Western institutions are failing uh, the world and its ability to, to fight COVID. Uh, right now, 
countries are unable to come to an agreement at the World Trade Organization to lift intellectual property restrictions uh, in order to produce vaccines um, around the world. Uh, uh, because right now, you know, you can't, if you're, you know, in, in India or Brazil, uh, you, if you're a, 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 a manufacturer with the know-how uh, to produce certain vaccines, um, you know, let's say even the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is not one of the mRNA vaccines, um, you know, right now you can't just uh, have access to the uh, Johnson & Johnson technology um, uh, in order to produce the vaccines. Uh, and so you can't do it. And if you did, you get in trouble. Um, so there's a proposal right now at the World Trade Organization, I'm sure perhaps your listeners are, are, are familiar with, uh, that would lift uh, restrictions to allow manufacturers to produce those vaccines, um, to produce vaccines, the, the Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and right now that proposal is essentially being, being held up uh, uh, because of opposition from extremely wealthy countries. For once, for once it's, this is not the United States that is the only country that is doing this. The Biden administration not supports tempor temporarily lifting uh, IP restrictions, uh, but the UK uh, is still uh, was still opposed, um, and, and Germany was still opposed, and they've been sort of dragging their feet on this, and it's before the WTO right now. This is a great example of how, I mean, the World Trade Organization uh, essentially failing to uh, meet a need that would directly, uh, an, an, an extremely important need facing the world uh, right now. Uh, you know, so that there, there's a, a clear example of that. And these countries, you know, are saying essentially that they're willing to to break uh, to break the rules and try to try to work around the rules right now. But yeah, it's a complete failure of the of the WTO. And that fight in the WTO, it's not getting any coverage here in the U.S. media, so a lot of people probably don't know about it. We've had guests mention it a few times on our show, but I never see any reports about that in, on CNN. When they're telling us, you know, we're all in this together, and then they're ignoring these stories where we might be able to make it, so we're all in this together. So it, Devix also reports that the WHO has appealed to the G7 to help vaccinate at least 70% of the world's population by mid-2022. But the leaders' dose-sharing commitments of up to one 1 billion doses would only reach just 10.3% of the population in low and middle income countries by that time period, according to an analysis by the One Campaign, which fights poverty and disease in Africa. Our low and middle income countries right now, places like Cuba and Venezuela, and then the entire continent of Africa outside of South Africa, which all has, every one of those nations has a lower vaccination rate than Venezuela, and many have vaccination rates that are below 1%. Considering the more transmissible virus variants like Delta, face, you know, with all these developing nations facing what could be the worst part of this virus yet, are they right now facing the absolute worst part of the virus, worse than we've ever experienced anywhere in the world yet because of these new variants and absolutely no vaccinations going to, Ven well, Venezuela, Cuba, but more importantly, the entire continent of Africa. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was looking, uh, you know, recently was seeing the number of cases just spiking uncontrollably right now and um, exponentially in Uganda, um, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa where you have similar situations, and you know not to mention all the cases that are going uh, undetected right now um, because of a lack of, of of supplies and testing capabilities. Um, so I don't know if it's worse than what we've 
seen, but it's, I think it's fair to say it's really bad and it should get attention. Um, you know, more attention, frankly, um, from a lot of the, from a lot of the big, uh, a lot of the big Western media. And I think this, you know, this point about lifting intellectual property restrictions too, um, is an important one because some of the opponents of this policy, uh, you know, the big pharma, big pharma in particular, and we've heard this argument in the U S but also in the EU where it's been sort of more of an uphill battle, frankly, the French government now has come around on it, uh, but there's been a lot of opposition um, to lifting IP restrictions. And, you know, what, what the pharma people will tell you is they'll say, Oh, well uh, you know, we, it's not just like overnight, um, you know, you lift these restrictions. It's not like you're going to have factories in, in Haiti. Uh, it's not like you're going to have factories in Uganda that are able to just to churn out these complicated vaccines. Um, I don't think, I don't think anyone's really saying that this is going to be a, a silver bullet um, that automatically you lift IP restrictions on vaccines and, and that magically, you know, turns into, uh, translates into people getting vaccinated. But I think the mentality is we're in a international crisis, even if maybe it doesn't feel that way in the U S right now, because things are going fairly well. But once you leave the United States, once you leave the EU, uh, a lot of countries are struggling heavily with this. And I think the broader mentality, um, I, I think should be one of crisis. And we're still in this extremely uh, fatal, dangerous health crisis. And when you're in a crisis, uh, you know, you consider measures uh, on the table um, because you're in a crisis. And, and I don't think that anyone's arguing that, that this is going to magically solve the problem. But if the, the problem is a severe shortage of, of supplies, uh, a shortage of doses, uh, and an inequality in the, when it comes to the distribution of the doses, um, I think you had to consider measures that are able to, 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 to help, uh, to help boost uh, production and make sure that there are more doses that are out there, you know, whether it's sharing technologies, uh, whether it's lifting, uh, IP rights, uh, whether it's lifting, uh, sanctions that are in place for political reasons, uh, against certain countries. I think all of these measures should be, should be considered. I hope I'm not becoming, doesn't make me sound like too much of an, of an advo advocacy journalist, but I think on an issue like this. You know, there's a pretty compelling uh, moral case to be made. We have been speaking with journalist Cole Stangler, who wrote the Intercept article, U.S. Sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela Hamper the Global Fight Against COVID-19. Cole is a Paris-based journalist covering politics and labor issues. This is his third appearance here on This Is Hell. You can hear both of our interviews with Cole about the yellow vest from December 2018 and February 2019 by going to our website, thisishell.com, and searching on Stangler. You can follow Cole on Twitter at Cole Stangler, and you can find out more about Cole at his website, ColeStangler.com, as we always do with all of our guests. Cole, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. How dangerous is it to the rest of the world, especially developing economies, when the pandemic is over in the United States? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's... Yeah, I think I think it's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think you know, I mean, I think I think we're seeing some of the consequences of that uh, right now. Um, you know, it's it, it it sort of seems to be less and less of a uh, or an issue that that's that's generating less attention uh, in in the United States. Um, and you know, I don't want to get too dark here, but watching this from abroad happen. You know, I'm, I'm American as well. Um, you know, watching this happen. 
uh, you know, thinking to myself, the U.S., the amount of people that died as a result of this virus, um, you know, in some ways, it just seems to me, it's felt very American to see the amount of people tragically losing their lives to this virus and inability to tackle the virus. And the U.S. is also the first country um, out of this crisis, it seems like. Um, and, you know, the rest, the, re the rest of the world, it's not just outside the U.S., it's really the, outside of Europe as well. You know, the rest of the world is, is really still struggling with this. And I think it's, you know, an issue that deserves, you know, still merits our, still merits our attention. Cole, I really appreciate you being back on the show with us. The interviews that we, you know, the conversations that we had about the yellow vest back in 2018 and 2019 were really fascinating. And I love the writing that you're doing right now at The Intercept. So thank you so much for being back on our show, Cole. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Chuck. All right, take care. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. And if you like what Cole Stangler just reported to us, Please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. This week's question from hell is, what mantra are you repeating? What mantra are you repeating? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. And you can see all of the stuff that we have by going to thisishell.com again and clicking on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, during this week's moment, Jeff is coming to dinner. Richard, do you have more answers to this week's question from hell from our listening audience? Yes, I do. All right. And, uh, again, I'm kind of stuck with this uh, Facebook algorithm. It's so you don't know really if you're repeating answers from yesterday? <laughs> yeah, because the date stamps are like, some of them are from Monday, and uh, yeah, it's really frustrating. Right. So, so. Uh, Given that frustration. <laughs> uh, what, what mantra are you repeating? Kim G says, um, dot, 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 <laughs> dot, 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 dot. <laughs> Um, Mark, Mark C says, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's a nice mantra. That'll get you to relax. Marianne M says, do whatever you want. I like that. Aaron D, yeah, sirs, everything is awesome. Everything is cool <laughs> when you're part of the team. Oh, my God. Ronaldo Answers, entropy increases. <laughs> entropy increases. I've got that tattooed on my back, actually. <laughs> Susan M. Answers, oh boy. <laughs> David Z. Answers, there's no basement at the Alamo. <laughs> there is no basement at the Alamo. Or at that pizza shop in Washington, D.C. <laughs> what mantra are you repeating? Paulo S. answers, ooh. So we've got an ooh and an um. Yes. Many ums. <laughs> Our Jeffrey answers, warning, this product can expose you to, insert name of chemical, which is known to the state of California to cause cancer. <laughs> For more information, go to www.p65warnings.california.gov. <laughs> All right, then. I will do that. Jacob H. answers, the moment is the best it will ever get. 
<laughs> regardless of what the moment is or how bad or good it gets. Well, at least he can live in the moment. That's very zen of him. <laughs> David answer. David S. answers, Om, 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 my effing God. <laughs> and lastly, Joel G. says, Say the word and you'll be free. Say the word and be like me. Say the word I'm thinking of. Have you heard? The word is love. <laughs> it's a little bit long for a mantra, but okay. It's a Beatles song, too. We'll have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. Hey, Richard, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but when my brother was, uh, my late brother, just yes. passed away in February, yes. when he was uh, confirmed in the Catholic Church, the uh, John, uh, the Cardinal, Cardinal Dearden, John Cardinal Dearden in uh, Detroit, he was confirming my brother. And my brother said, and he said to you, what is the name that you take as your confirmation name? And my brother, this is 1963, I think, says, Ringo. <laughs> and the Cardinal said, it has to be the name of a saint. <laughs> to which my brother replied, okay. Paul. <laughs> so he still got to be a Beatle. We'll have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. Richard, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow we have Brian Justy on I his logic. <laughs> I, I see that. Alex kind of missed Yeah, that. space there. <laughs> I didn't even notice that until just now. All week we've been saying Brian Justian. Yeah. On his Logic Magazine report, but it's actually Brian Justy on, on his, his Logic Magazine report. See what new eyes will do to you? <laughs> <laughs> I got to get that, too. We got to get it for Alex, too. <laughs> so what's the name of his article? What's his article about again? Let's see. Uh, on his Logic Magazine report on automation, labor, and the U.S. Postal Service. The non-machinables. Mm, no, that's quite a, quite a title. And during this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff Dorchin is coming to dinner, as we've been saying earlier on the show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Merce. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. Thanks to our guest, Cole Stangler, and thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.